Chapter Fifty Three of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fifty Three: The New Empires of the Europeans in Asia and Overseas. While Central Europe thus remained divided and confused, the Western Europeans, and particularly the Dutch, the Scandinavians, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, and the British were extending the area of their struggles across the seas of all the world the printing press had dissolved the political ideas of europe into a vast and at first indeterminate fermentation but that other great innovation the ocean-going sailing-ship was inexorably extending the range of european experience to the furthermost limits of salt water the first overseas settlements of the dutch and northern atlantic europeans were not for colonization but for trade and mining the spaniards were first in the field they claimed dominion over the whole of this new world of america very soon however the portuguese asked for a share the pope it was one of the last acts of rome as mistress of the world divided the new continent between these two first-comers giving Portugal, Brazil, and everything else east of a line 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands, and all the rest to Spain, 1494. The Portuguese at this time were also pushing overseas enterprise southward and eastward. In 1497 Vasco da Gama had sailed from Lisbon round the Cape to Zanzibar, and then to Calicut in India. In 1515, there were Portuguese ships in Java and the Moluccas, and the Portuguese were setting up and fortifying trading stations round and about the coasts of the Indian Ocean. Mozambique, Goa, and two smaller possessions in India, Macao in China, and a part of Timor are to this day Portuguese possessions. The nations excluded from America by the papal settlement paid little heed to the rights of Spain and Portugal, the English, the Danes and Swedes, and presently the Dutch, were soon staking out claims in North America and the West Indies, and His Most Catholic Majesty of France heeded the papal settlement as little as any Protestant. The wars of Europe extended themselves to these claims and possessions. In the long run, the English were the most successful in this scramble for overseas possessions. The Danes and Swedes were too deeply entangled in the complicated affairs of Germany to sustain effective expeditions abroad. Sweden was wasted upon the German battlefields by a picturesque king, Gustavus Adolphus, the Protestant Lion of the North. The Dutch were the heirs of such small settlements as Sweden made in America, and the Dutch were too near French aggressions to hold their own against the British. In the Far East, the chief rivals for empire were the British, Dutch, and French, and in America the British, French, and Spanish. The British had the supreme advantage of a water frontier, the silver streak of the English Channel against Europe. The tradition of the Latin Empire entangled them least. France had always thought too much in terms of Europe. Throughout the 18th century, she was wasting her opportunities of expansion in West and East alike, in order to dominate Spain, Italy, and the German confusion. 
the religious and political dissensions of Britain in the seventeenth century had driven many of the English to seek a permanent home in America. They struck root and increased and multiplied, giving the British a great advantage in the American struggle. In 1756 and 1760, the French lost Canada to the British and their American colonists, and a few years later the British trading company found itself completely dominant over French, Dutch, and Portuguese in the peninsula of India. The great Mongol empire of Babur, Akbar, and their successors had now far gone into decay, and the story of its practical capture by a London trading company, the British East India Company, is one of the most extraordinary episodes in the whole history of conquest. This East India Company had been originally at the time of its incorporation under Queen Elizabeth no more than a company of sea adventurers. Step by step they had been forced to raise troops and arm their ships, and now this trading company with its tradition of gain, found itself dealing not merely in spices and dyes and tea and jewels, but in the revenues and territories of princes and the destinies of India. It had come to buy and sell, and it found itself achieving a tremendous piracy. There was no one to challenge its proceedings. Is it any wonder that its captains and commanders and officials, nay, even its clerks and common soldiers, came back to England, loaded with spoils. Men under such circumstances, with a great and wealthy land at their mercy, could not determine what they might or might not do. It was a strange land to them, with a strange sunlight. Its brown people seemed a different race, outside their range of sympathy. Its mysterious temples sustained fantastic standards of behavior. Englishmen at home were perplexed, when presently these generals and officials came back to make dark accusations against each other of extortions and cruelties. Upon Clive Parliament passed a vote of censure. He committed suicide in 1774. In 1788 Warren Hastings, a second great Indian administrator, was impeached and acquitted, 1792. It was a strange and unprecedented situation in the world's history, the English Parliament found itself ruling over a London trading company, which in its turn was dominating an empire far greater and more populous than all the domains of the British crown. To the bulk of the English people India was a remote, fantastic, almost inaccessible land, to which adventurous poor young men went out to return after many years very rich and very choleric old gentlemen. It was difficult for the English to conceive what the life of these countless brown millions in the eastern sunshine could be. Their imaginations declined the task. India remained romantically unreal. It was impossible for the English, therefore, to exert any effective supervision and control over the company's proceedings. And while the Western European powers were thus fighting for these fantastic overseas empires upon every ocean in the world, two great land conquests were in progress in Asia. China had thrown off the Mongol yoke in 1360 and flourished under the great native dynasty of the Mings until 1644. 
Then the Manchus, another Mongol people, reconquered China and remained masters of China until 1912. Meanwhile, Russia was pushing east and growing to greatness in the world's affairs. The rise of this great central power of the old world, which is neither altogether of the east nor altogether of the west, is one of the utmost importance to our human destiny. Its expansion is very largely due to the appearance of a Christian steppe people, the Cossacks, who formed a barrier between the feudal agriculture of Poland and Hungary to the west, and the Tartar to the east. The Cossacks were the wild east of Europe, and in many ways not unlike the wild west of the United States in the middle nineteenth century. All who had made Russia too hot to hold them, criminals as well as the persecuted innocent, rebellious serfs, religious secretaries, thieves, vagabonds, murderers, sought asylum in the southern steppes, and there made a fresh start, and fought for life and freedom against Pole, Russian, and Tartar alike. Doubtless, fugitives from the Tartars to the east also contributed to the Cossack mixture. Slowly these border folk were incorporated in the Russian imperial service, much as the highland clans of Scotland were converted into regiments by the British government. New lands were offered them in Asia. They became a weapon against the dwindling power of the Mongolian nomads, first in Turkestan and then across Siberia, as far as the Amur. The decay of Mongol energy in the 17th and 18th centuries is very difficult to explain. Within two or three centuries from the days of Genghis and Timurlane, Central Asia had relapsed from a period of world ascendancy to extreme political impotence. Changes of climate, unrecorded pestilences, infections of a malarial type may have played their part in this recession which may be only a temporary recession, measured by the scale of universal history, of the Central Asian peoples. Some authorities think that the spread of Buddhist teaching from China also had a pacifying influence upon them. At any rate, by the 16th century, the Mongol, Tartar and Turkish peoples were no longer pressing outward, but were being invaded, subjugated and pushed back, both by Christian Russia in the West and by China in the East. All through the 17th century, the Cossacks were spreading eastward from European Russia and settling wherever they found agricultural conditions. Cordons of forts and stations formed a moving frontier to these settlements to the south, where the Turkomans were still strong and active. To the northeast, however, Russia had no frontier, until she reached right to the Pacific. End of chapter 53